You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 109th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm closing out the relationship month of season three of this podcast, and we'll be moving into our education month with Dr. Don Parker. Dr. Parker is a highly sought after speaker and professional development provider. He was the principal of Lincoln Avenue School, a K-8 school in Dalton, Illinois, where he improved the culture, implemented a resilience program, managed the implementation of restorative justice, and increased attendance and school achievement. Those are some big things to be able to say you did. Congratulations on that. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate it. Dr. Parker believes in creating a school climate where all staff go above and beyond to meet the needs of students. Welcome, Don, and thank you so much for joining us today to talk about creating a positive school climate and your unique approach to it. Thank you, Kim. The pleasure is all mine. You ready to get started? I am. All right. What is the best approach teachers can take to build relationships with challenging students? Kim, there are several approaches. In the research, there's something that's called an ecological approach. And I think that's the best approach that teachers can take to building relationships with at-risk students. What an ecological approach does is it gives teachers a variety of ways to engage students as far as what interventions they can provide for at-risk students. So that means that they can implement Interventions from the school level, interventions from the community level, or interventions from the home level. So what that does basically is it peels back the layers of a lot of the issues that the student may be having and to see where are those issues generated from. Is it from the home? Is it from the community? Or is it in school? And so once they find out exactly where the problem is and where the disconnect is and where the problem is actually occurring, then they can use the intervention at that level to help the student be more successful. I really like that. It makes a lot of sense because you go and intervene where the actual problem is occurring, which just makes good sense. And the researchers had to work their way up to that point because it started off in the early 90s with the epidemiological approach. And that approach looked at the epidermia of the student. They figured that, hey, there's something wrong with the student's DNA or the student may have a Mm -hmm. physical handicap or an intellectual handicap. And that's the reason that the student is at risk in the school setting. And then years later, they came up with a social constructivist approach. And what the social constructivist approach said is that we're teachers. So we can't say that just because a student has something going on psychologically or physically that we can't help them because we're investing in our students and we want to reap the rewards of our work. So we know that there's things that we can do at the school level to help the student to be successful. And then as the research evolved, so did the interventions become better. And that's where they arrived at the ecological approach. So they said, we're not going to only help them in school, but we're also going to help them with issues they have at home in the community. And when we put all those pieces together, it will result in the student performing better because we looked at all those different problems at all those different levels and applied interventions. And therefore, you know, the students should be successful in school because we're doing what we can to support the student. I really like that approach. Do you find that teachers sometimes push back against that, that they're not social workers, they're not counselors? How can they be expected to do all that? 
You know, I do. And to be honest with you, it's a big job for just one person. And so that's why we have to elicit the support of social workers, school psychologists. We have to build that parent-home communication and partnership in order to help students because it is too much for one teacher to do. What teachers can do, however, is just put more tools in their toolbox because they have to realize that it's going to be easier to teach math once I've taught respect. It's going to be easier to teach science once I've taught students how to regulate their emotions. So the social emotional learning piece has to take place. So teachers have to be equipped with methods and techniques and the know-how on how to also teach students those social emotional learning intelligence that they need in order to open up the pathways to educating the child. I like that, Don. Why is it so important that schools provide that emotional support to students and teachers? And how might they do that? Well, it's so important because even before COVID hit, you know, students were having an array of social emotional learning issues. Students come to us with a lot of issues that take place in the home. They are victims of trauma. I shouldn't say victims of trauma. They have experienced trauma. That's a better word. So what the research says is that 80% of all students will experience at least one adverse childhood experience by the time they're 18. And that's research from the National Institute of Resilience. And so knowing that students have suffered from a trauma, we have to understand where they're coming from. And we have to ask the question, what happened to the student as opposed to what's wrong with the student? And when we do that, we learn our student's story. Then we can actually understand what issues they're struggling with. And once we earn what issues they're struggling with, then we can start to support the student in that manner. Once we do that, the research says there's two kinds of stress. There's eustress and there's distress. Eustress is that kind of stress that makes you get excited. It's that kind of anxiety where, like, before you have to give a speech or before you have to play in a big game, you're excited about it. It gets you excited that you have to perform. It peaks your performance. However, distress is a performance stress where you're worried, you're anxious, you are not confident. And what that does, it blocks your critical thinking skills. And so sometimes students come to us with a lot of trauma and we have to learn how to help them deal with that trauma, help them regulate their emotions and get them in the right mind frame so that their brain is ready to receive the instruction so that it can open up those learning pathways. Do you ever find that you have teachers who also have experienced trauma and don't know how to emotionally regulate? And how hard is it for them then to help their students? Teachers are dealing with so much stress, trauma, nervousness, anxiety. Yale and Cassell hooked up to do a study. And what they found when they interviewed over 5,000 teachers, when the teachers responded to the survey, the words that they used were anxious, fearful, anxiety, and stressed out. When they were talking about how they were feeling, I was able to think back to a story where I actually had firsthand experience of a teacher who was dealing with trauma and stress. This teacher had a 45-minute commute to the school from Bolingbrook. She would come to the school. She would arrive at the school every day around 7.35. The school day started at 8. She used to come in at 7.35. But as the year went on, we found that she would still arrive at the school around 7.35, but she wouldn't come in until about 7.55. The teachers all had to sign in by 8 o'clock. One particular morning, we noticed that she hadn't come in yet. And she had been dealing with some personal issues in her marriage. She had been dealing with a disruptive class where she had some students who were disruptive in class. And she had a lot of discipline problems and things like that. And we became aware of this. 
But on this particular day, you noticed that it was 7.55 and she hadn't signed in. Then it was 8 o'clock and she hadn't signed in. And we said, hey, where is she? My secretary said, well, I saw her car in the parking lot when I got here. Maybe we should go check on her. So me and my secretary leave the office and walk to the parking lot. And when we looked inside her car, we saw that she was slumped over, passed out over the steering wheel. We quickly dialed 911 and the ambulance came and we called her husband and said, hey, this is what's going on. And the husband raced and met her at the hospital. And we found out later that she had passed out from having a nervous breakdown. She had so much anxiety and she was being stressed out. She wasn't managing her emotions. She wasn't using coping skills. It just got too much. So now I am so aware of how, you know, a lot of things that's happening, not only in the field of education that has to deal with, you know, the pressures of standardized testing, the pressures of accommodating the classroom with students every day, the workload when it comes down to preparing lessons, doing everything that your principals and district administration has to have you do. It's becoming so much for teachers. And that's in addition to what they have going on in their personal lives and in their family lives and things like that. And sometimes it can be a bit much. So what I've done when I was the principal is just pay very close attention to my teachers' emotions. And I do intentional things at my staff meetings, like start up the staff meeting with, hey, let's just share good news about what's going on in the school. Let's give teachers shout outs about positive things that they've done. Let's just take a moment to talk and de-stress. Or one of our professional development days, instead of jumping right into the content and teacher responsibility, let's do a session of yoga. Let's do a self-care exercise. And so I've started being very intentional as far as activities that I can do with my teachers just to equip them with some coping skills. And in addition to that, I constantly check up with my teachers and I ask, hey, how are you doing? And they may say, fine. But if I sense that they're not doing fine, if I see that they're not themselves and they have that defeatist look on their face, I touch them on the shoulder. I say, hey, let's talk about how you're really doing. I want to send someone to cover your class. And I just want to have a conversation with you in the office just so you can talk to me. Let me know what's going on with you. And I'm going to tell you, Kim, I keep a box of Kleenex right there on my desk because many teachers will divulge their feelings and what's really going on internally. Because when they say fine, that really means feelings inside not expressed. And I really want them to know that they can be comfortable talking to me because I'm here to support them. That's just what I do to help my teachers. Just let them know that I'm there for them. It's so much more than what you say, because what you're really doing is you're modeling what you want your teachers to do for students. That really trickles down. So when you can support your staff, then they can be there to support the students. You're absolutely right, because I'm sure you are familiar with the saying that says you can't pour from an empty glass. So we want to make sure that we're filling our teachers up with what they need, because honestly, asking a student who has experienced trauma to just come in and learn. That's like telling a teacher, hey, drop your baggage off the door and come in and teach. It's not going to happen that way. What we have to do is make sure that we are attuned to our teachers' needs and make sure that we are giving them the support they need to be healthy because we need healthy teachers to in turn make healthy students. That begs the question, if you as the principal are providing all the support to your teachers, where do you get your support? Over the years, I've just learned the importance of self-care. I have a lot of coping methods that I use. It includes working out regularly, going to church, have people who I can talk to, pick up the phone when I'm having issues or things that I need to discuss. I make sure that I'm eating healthy. I make sure that I try to get new information so I can stay on top of things. So I know how to deal with different situations where I don't have to figure it out and reinvent the wheel. I'm constantly reading, listening to podcasts, 
and just trying to stay on the cutting edge of what's happening in our field of education. And then just having a positive supportive network with other principals, other educational leaders, things like that. That's really helped keep me grounded. That's good. We surely don't want to find out about principals slumped over their steering wheel in their car. They need to be taking care of themselves too. I'm glad to hear you have that in your life. Thank you. I know that COVID, and maybe it's not just COVID after hearing what you've said, but I know that COVID has highlighted some teacher attrition and the teacher shortage is so high right now. What do you think schools can do to recruit and retain good teachers? You're absolutely right. Teacher attrition has been an issue for a while now. I study a lot of research from Dr. Richard Ingersoll on attrition. And he is a professor of education and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. He's been studying teacher attrition for decades. He tells us that 44% of new teachers will quit within the first five years. And he said that the turnover rate is even higher in schools with a greater concentration of students of color. It's 50%. And then teacher attrition is 70% in schools who serve the most population of students of color and poverty. It's really bad right now, and it's getting worse because what they even said when they project the number of teachers we will have within the next five to 10 years, they talk about how few people are even in the college programs to be prepared to become teachers. That number is dwindling. In order to really recruit and maintain good teachers, there are several things that we can do. We have to give teachers support. We have to give them the kind of support that they need. A lot of the professional development for teachers are district mandated. And the district is giving teachers what they feel the teachers need. However, teachers have a different idea of what they feel that they need in order to be more effective with their students. What districts should do is really survey teachers, ask teachers, hey, what support do you need to help you become a stronger teacher? In addition to that, teachers need the support with their social and emotional well-being. Just like a lot of students are learning self-regulation skills, Teachers need to understand that they also have to invoke coping skills in order to deal with the demands on the job. In addition to that, we have to find a way to listen to teachers, have be empathetic toward teachers, and give them the support that they need. I think those are great ideas. And because of all the teachers that I know, I think they would definitely concur with that. Being given training that doesn't have much relevance for them and not getting the training that would really give them what they need. Right. When I look at teacher attrition, I look at the factors that cause it. And the main factors were lack of support from administration, low pay and workload, and then actually dealing with disruptive students. All those things together became a bit overwhelming. And it just so happened that about two weeks ago, I had a former teacher call me and he called me. He asked me for a letter of recommendation. I said, well, what's going on? He said, I'm going to leave the profession altogether. I'm applying to be a college admissions director because I don't want to continue teaching. So I'm going to quit. I said, well, when are you going to quit? Is it going to be at the end of the year? He said, no, it's tomorrow. (laughs) He said, we need this letter of recommendation as soon as possible. He said, I report to my school every morning at seven o'clock. And then I stay after school just to help students or serve in an after school program. Then by the time I get home, it's six o'clock. Then I have to prepare for the next day. I have to grade papers and things like that. He says, and I'm up doing work until like 11 or 1130 at night. He said, Don, I feel like I'm living my job and I'm not living my life. And so he was in tears during this conversation. 
part of me so badly wanted to just motivate him, tell him hang in there. But I fear if I would have did that, that he would have like questioned his own resilience and strength. And he probably would have tried to continue on and just would have became burnt out and it could have created further problems. So I said, hey, you know, whatever you need, I'm here for you. I'll write you that letter of recommendation. It was sad because he's a really good teacher. It's too bad that we lose the good ones. That's the problem. A lot of teachers are still struggling and they feel that way and they want to continue teaching, but they just want that reprieve. How do you teach teachers how to develop more empathy for their students? It was kind of sobering because I remember over the the pandemic, it was right around the time where the George Floyd incident happened. Police were just being bombarded with insults and things like that. And my little brother is a Chicago police. And he was feeling the pressure and feeling the displeasure from the public. He said, man, Don, he's like, I can't take this anymore. I'm just getting so sick and tired of being disrespected by a lot of people when I'm on my job. Do you ever feel like that? Because, you know, I know you work with challenging students and I know you work with a lot of parents who are disrespectful and things like that. He said, how do you deal with that? And I said, hey, little bro, think about it. Would you rather be the doctor or be the patient? People come to doctors when they have issues, when they have problems that they need to be worked on and they need to be helped out or they need to be cured. And then a doctor has to perform surgery and be on a table. Would you rather be the one on the table or would you rather be the one performing the surgery? We have to be grateful that we're in a position to serve others because just like me, I'm in a job where I have to serve other people and you're in a career where you have to serve other people as well. We're blessed so we can be a blessing to others. I'm glad that I'm in a position where I can help other people. And I said, with you being in a position where you can help other people too, you have to understand that to whom much is given, much is required. So yes, we have to be patient. We have to be empathetic. And we have to get to know the real problem that the person is having. So that way we can know how we need to help them. Of course, we have problems. Everyone has problems. But sometimes our problems aren't to the severity of the people who we're serving. So we just have to understand how we're in a position where we can help and serve other people and be grateful for that. What a nice reframe. I really like that. How can educators help students make better life choices? We have to, just like you use the word reframe, we have to reframe student situations. And we have to make a teachable moment out of every situation that where a student may make a mistake. Not only do we have to make it a teachable moment, we have to make it a lovable moment. We have to let the students know that, hey, we care not only about your academic success, but we care about you as a person. We have to let students know that, yes, they make mistakes. What I like to do is encourage educators and other people who work with students to be vulnerable and to use self-disclosure to let students know that, hey, you know what? We're not perfect. We've made mistakes as well. However, we're in a position now because we learn from our mistakes. Although you have made a mistake, you have to learn from the mistake. And then you do the role play with them. You let them know that actions and rewards are tied to decisions. Whenever you're in a situation, you have to think about what is going to be the result of this decision I make. Once you think about that, that will help you make the decision if you think a few steps ahead of what could happen as a result of this decision that I'm going to make. If you think about alternatives to the decision that you're going to make, you say, okay, well, what might happen if I make this decision? I just let students know that you have to just pause and just think for a moment about what actions you're going to take. I let them know that your identity dictates your actions. If you're a good person and you're faced with a situation 
you have to know, hey, I want to do the right thing and let them know that we value them, we respect them, and you're a good person. Therefore, since you're a good person, we want to help you make those healthy decisions. That's great. They'll be coming on my podcast soon to talk about life equals choices, choices equal life. (laughs) (laughs) I could talk to you forever about this. You're a wealth of knowledge and I've really enjoyed our conversation, but we're running out of time. So I just want to ask you if there's anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to add. You know what? I know that you want to give your listeners a lot of information to help them. I do as well. And I know that a 30-minute podcast isn't going to give the listeners everything that they need. And I do this as well when I talk to my participants, when I have speaking engagements, and when I do trainings and workshops. And so I tell them, I know that one hour, it will have a huge impact. However, it won't have the hugest impact because there's more information that I wish I could share. I've written a book, and it's entitled Building Bridges, Engaging Students at Risk Through the Power of Relationships. And what I do in this book is just share a lot of research, personal experiences, and a lot of evidence-based strategies that teachers and educators can use with students. And also schools can read this book to find out how they can improve their school climate to make it a place where teachers and students love coming. Yep, that's the goal. If you can create the environment where teachers and students can get their needs met, they're going to want to be there. Absolutely. And I work with schools and teachers and I do workshops on how teachers can build trusting relationships with challenging students and also how schools can implement a resilience program for their challenging students to help students to be successful. I do a lot of this work. I love doing the work and schools that I work with have seen transformational changes in their school atmosphere from the behavior and attitudes of their students and teachers. Yeah, and you're really making a difference. And that's why you're in such high demand. That's terrific. Do you have anything coming up that my audience might be able to attend or be interested in? Any speaking engagements? Yes, I have several speaking engagements. I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but if teachers want to visit my website or attend one of my trainings, I list my trainings on my website. My website is drdonparker.com and they can visit my website and they can just look at upcoming events and they'll see the places that I'm speaking at doing presentations and things of that nature. I'll make sure that that gets put in the show notes, Don. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kip. And I want to thank you for all the great work that you're doing. You're using your knowledge and resources to equip other people with making better life choices. And I just thank you for having me as a guest on your podcast. And thank you for all that you do. This expression of gratitude isn't just limited to myself. I know there's a lot of people that feel that way about the work you're doing, Kim. Thank you so much. I wanted to also appreciate you and you taking time to talk with me and my audience today, because I know you could be spending your time doing any number of things, including writing your next book. So I'm so happy you chose to spend it with us. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Brian Zeman about his lessons learned in his many years working in education. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.